You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you happen to be listening to the Lovecast. I hope you're having a good one. With that out of the way, I've got a couple of things to say about Dave Chappelle's new Netflix special, The Closer, which I watched in a secret undisclosed location this weekend. First, I can see why people are upset, particularly trans people. I found some of it upsetting myself. There was a lot of misgendering and some invalidating going on in there. Still, I think it's futile or futile, take your pick of pronunciations, I think it's futile to call on Netflix to pull the show down or to call for Chappelle's cancellation. But you know what? I took a look online, I went on Twitter, and there are a lot more people on Twitter condemning calls for Chappelle's cancellation than there are people on Twitter calling for Chappelle's cancellation, which shows us how completely cancel culture has been captured and weaponized. Anti-cancel culture is the new cancel culture. Cancel the cancelers. And by this time next week, it'll be anti-anti-cancel culture. We will have moved on to canceling the cancelers of the cancelers who canceled the canceled. But to the small number of people I did see online calling for Chappelle's cancellation or for the closer to be pulled off Netflix, take a moment and Google the Streisand effect. If you don't want people to see something, don't tell people they can't or shouldn't be allowed to see it, because then they'll want to look. I'm old enough to remember when the Pope, three or four popes ago, called for the banning of Martin Scorsese's 1988 film, The Last Temptation of Christ, in which this guy, Jesus, imagines running off with this girl, Mary Magdalene, at the last minute and having a few kids instead of getting nailed to a cross, and then decides to die for our sins after all. As I sat in a theater watching The Last Temptation of Christ in 1988, I remember thinking to myself, I wouldn't be here watching this shitty movie if the Pope hadn't told me I shouldn't be allowed to see it. Still, that said, while I don't think Chappelle should be canceled or could be canceled, and while I don't think The Closer should be yanked off Netflix, I do think we should engage with it, argue about it, critique it, and critique him, which is what I'm going to do now. I'm not going to take on everything about it. Craig Jenkins has a great piece up at Vulture about the show, headlined Dave Chappelle's Endless Feedback Loop, that really unpacks the transphobia that seems to animate The Closer. And if you care to read a counterargument, Andrew Sullivan offered a defense of The Closer on his Substack last Friday. You could be a grown-up and read both. One of the criticisms that I want to talk about and kind of participate in is about how Chappelle seems to pit the LGBTQ community, the alphabet people, as he famously called us, against the black community, and argues that the LGBT movement has basically lapped the black movement, the civil rights movement. First, these aren't two distinct communities, as some critics huffily and correctly pointed out. There are black, gay, and trans, and queer people out there, and the success of the LGBT movement is their success too. They helped build it. And Chappelle knows that. I I don't actually think this is a fair criticism of The Closer. I don't think Chappelle thinks all queer people are white. He talks about queer black people in The Closer. He knows and makes it clear that not all black people are straight or cis. But 
He does compare the success of the LGBT civil rights movement, a civil rights movement, lowercase c, r, and m, with the civil rights movement, uppercase c, r, and m. That is the movement to end discrimination against black Americans, the movement to end Jim Crow and segregation and poll taxes. But did the LGBT civil rights movement really achieve more in a shorter amount of time, which is Chappelle's argument, than the black civil rights movement? The Stonewall Riots took place in 1969. There was a gay rights movement before Stonewall, but the riots are considered the start of the modern gay rights movement. So we got from those riots in 1969 to what's considered the signature political achievement of the LGBT movement, marriage equality. In just, doing the math, 46 years. The Stonewall Riot, 1969, the Supreme Court decision that declared same-sex marriage a constitutional right, 2015. The NAACP was founded in 1909, but the start of the modern all-caps civil rights movement is usually dated to 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus and kicked off the Montgomery bus boycott, the boycott that made Martin Luther King Jr. into a national figure. The Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. Nine years later, the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. The Fair Housing Act passed in 1968. The passage of the Civil Rights Act didn't end discrimination against black people or stop all violence targeting black people. But the achievements for the LGBT movement didn't end discrimination or violence against LGBT people either. Still, I I had to laugh. I did laugh. I'm sorry I laughed when Chappelle did an impression of Martin Luther King Jr. ordering his followers to make like the LGBT movement, like the gay rights movement, pull on some booty shorts and oil up your bodies and dance on flatbed trucks like all the hot and greasy twinks at pride parades, clearly the way to do it. The joke here is that the movement for black equality would have made faster gains if there were more booty shorts and shiny pecs involved. I reject the premise of that joke for reasons I've just unpacked, but Chappelle's blasphemous impression of Martin Luther King Jr. is kind of hilarious. But no, 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 no. Demon twinks and speedos on flatbed trucks dancing to bad uncha, uncha, uncha music were not the secret to the LGBT movement's success. Really, that's not what did it. What did? Well, you can find an example in the closer of what did it, our secret weapon, an example drawn from Chappelle's own life. The secret to our success, the LGBT movement's secret weapon, We are randomly distributed throughout the population. Gay people and bi people and trans people are born into straight families. And once we started to come out to our families in ever greater numbers, which LGBT people did at great personal risk decades ago and still do at great personal risk today, straight people began to change. They came around. One parent, one sibling, one aunt at a time. Then one roommate. Then one employer. Then one coworker at a time. Those relationships, not the booty shorts, made the difference. For me, that's the irony of the closer. Chappelle knows this, but he doesn't seem to know that he knows it. The whole last section of the special, nearly a quarter of the show, is about Chappelle's friendship with a trans woman named Daphne Dorman, an aspiring comedian that Chappelle took under his wing. He let her open for him when he played in San Francisco. She bombed, but they bonded. It's a funny story with a sad ending. Daphne Dorman would later take her own life. Now, I gotta say, Chappelle's use of Daphne Dorman's story of their friendship has a whiff of, I can't be racist, I have a black friend about it. 
He's been accused of being transphobic, and he points to his friendship with Dorman, which began after those accusations were made, as proof that he isn't. But it was through his relationship with Dorman that Chappelle began to see the humanity of trans people, which he was able to do, he says, because she was a member of his tribe, comedians, or what you might call his family, his chosen family, his logical family. When I came out to my family, my parents accepted me, but it was at first very conditional. They didn't reject me because I was family, but it took them a while to get all the way there, to see that my gayness didn't exist beside my humanity, but was intrinsically bound up within it. Watching The Closer, I felt like Chappelle wasn't there, not yet. Daphne almost got him there, though, and he may get there yet. It could, however, take him decades, like it took Eddie Murphy. I remember when Eddie Murphy's HBO comedy special, Delirious, came out in 1983. Here's the opening couple of minutes. And get some rules. I got some rules when I throw down. When I do my stand-up, I got rules and shit. Straight up. Faggots aren't allowed to look at my ass while I'm on stage. That's why I keep moving while I'm up here. So if you don't know where the faggot section is, you got to keep moving. So if they do see it, it's quick and you switch it. They don't get no long stare at your shit. Start having imagination flowing on my, about my... I know what you're looking at, too, because my ass get hot. I'm afraid of gay people. Petrified. I have nightmares about gay people. I have this nightmare that I go to Hollywood and find out that Mr. T is a faggot. It gets worse from there. The jokes about AIDS that come next are particularly ugly. I'm not going to play the clip about women giving their gay friends a quick kiss at the club and then coming home to their straight boyfriends with AIDS on their lips. I remember how angry I was about Delirious at the time. So I totally understand how angry folks are now about The Closer. I get it. There was a lot of pushback from the gay community against Murphy then, just like there's a lot of pushback against Chappelle from the LGBTQ community now. I think that pushback is important. It's part of the conversation. That conversation moves the culture. It changes people, but not always right away. At the time, in 1983, Murphy defended those jokes. The album for Delirious won a fucking Grammy. Today, Murphy says those jokes make him cringe. They made me cringe in 1983. They made me feel unsafe because they made me less safe than I already was as a gay teenager in Chicago. Murphy was protested then, but he wasn't canceled, obviously. He was rich and famous then. He's still rich and famous now. But he was criticized and protested. And those jokes, again, those jokes that won him a Grammy Award, today those jokes are seen as hateful and ignorant almost universally. He has said that he would not tell them now. But in a piece written in 2011 on the website Vulture, the same publication where you can go read the lengthy critique of The Closer, then-Vulture critic Willa Paskin, who's now Slate's TV critic, recommends Delirious. She says, Murphy is magnetic, sexy, big-hearted, joyous. And to anyone interested in watching Delirious now, she says, put the horrible gay jokes out of your mind and just enjoy him. Delirious was never taken out of distribution. You could watch it on HBO for years. You can watch it right now, today, on Netflix.
All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and joining me on the Magnum author and advice columnist, Alexander Cheeves, coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. This is a mid-30s woman who lives in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a sex success story for you. So I hunkered down for most of the pandemic, um, and now that more people are vaccinated and things are opening up, I've started putting myself back out there. And I've long wanted to explore my sexuality and group play. And now that I'm moving across the country soon, I figured that now is as good of a time as any. So I got onto field and a couple of weeks ago, I met a very nice couple that was looking for a third. So last weekend, they rented a hotel room and we met up beforehand to talk about our likes and dislikes, our boundaries, triggers and fantasies. Then we went up to the room and had about five hours of romping that started off with massaging each other with massage candle oil. And I had my first experience giving and receiving oral with a woman. Um, we 69 as he fucked her from behind, which was a very interesting view for me on the bottom. And we fulfilled a cuck-holding fantasy of mine um, and tied him up as she and I played. Uh, I rimmed him as he blew her. I learned that I really enjoy watching other people have sex when they're right in front of me. It's such a turn-on. And then at the end of the night, we retreated to our separate beds. We picked out on junk food and watched TV. It could not have been a better first through some experience. I literally left my city on a bang. I am familiar with that position that you mentioned. No kind of lingus was involved when I was familiarizing myself with that position, but I know what of you speak in a very general way. That was a great sex success story. Thank you so much for calling and sharing. I'm so glad it went so well. Listeners, if you have a great sex success story, if something went well for you in a hotel room with a couple or somewhere else with a single or a triple or whatever happened for you and you want to share it, give us a call, share your sex success story. We may start next week's Lovecast with yours. Uh, Hi, Dan. I'm in a situation where after a decade and a half, I approached my uh, best friend who is also my ex and uh, asked him, since I'm getting a divorce and he's single, uh, if he wanted to have sex again. And I completely forgot how huge and girthy his cock is and thought I might be ready to come during intercourse again for the first time in years and many, many years. And, well... You can probably guess where this is going. I uh, didn't mean to, but I fell in love with him again. And uh, he's not and never has been in love with me. And uh, it's a long-distance relationship. He also declined, thought about it for a while, since we're both in our 40s, declined my invitation to try to have his child. And... I'm really just heartbroken because he just seems sure that, you know, he'll never fall in love with me and I'm too obsessed. And is there any way to make this work and still be able to be friends with benefits? Not being friends at all is not an option, but I've just been in a deep depression and I could use some help. What are you willing to settle for? And how much pain are you willing to swallow, eat, endure if what you have to settle for is just being this man's friend with benefits, just being an occasional 
casual sex partner? Answer that question and then you'll know what to do. It seems to me you shouldn't fuck this guy anymore. You shouldn't hang out with him anymore. You shouldn't see him anymore. Unrequited love, settling for just being somebody's cum dump when you love them and want so much more from them, that hurts. That rips open the scab. Every single time you see that person, every single time you settle for so much less than you want in a relationship or from that relationship with that particular person, uh, you're reopening a wound that is never going to heal. Just get away from this guy. Stop fucking this guy. Go fuck somebody else. There's other guys out there with big juicy penises. Do the legwork and find a few and fuck them instead. And I don't think offering to have a baby with this guy is quite the attractive proposal that you seem to think it is. You know, he's probably, here I am telling you not to fuck him. He's probably decided that it would be too great a risk to fuck you going forward. Because if your solution, your proposal to bring you two closer together is to have a baby that he does not want to have, seems to me that makes you kind of a high-risk play partner if he doesn't want any sort of serious connection with you over time or a deepening relationship with you and doesn't want a child with you or anyone else. So I I think you should get away from him. I expect that after hearing from you about the baby that he doesn't want, that he's going to probably cut you a wide berth too, at least for a while in that time. Put yourself out there. Find other guys. It sucks. It sucks. I know it sucks because I have been in your shoes to carry a torch eternally and feel so strongly about what you might be able to have with someone who doesn't feel the same way about you. That sucks. There's nothing you can do about it except to feel your feelings, feel that pain, and then get away from the source of that pain. Stop exposing yourself to the source of that pain. Stop touching that hot stove with your pussy. Stop seeing this guy. You can't settle for what he's offering you. Ultimately, you're going to have to settle on someone else, someone who can offer you something closer to what it is you want out of a long-term relationship, long-term sexual relationship. And what you want is commitment and affection and love and intimacy. He's got a big juicy dick. He can give you that, but at what cost? The pain, the pain you're in now, it's too great a cost. Stay away from this man and his big juicy dick. Hi, Dan. I have a question about an interaction that happened between my sister's husband and me about 20 years ago. I was 19 and was living with my sister and her family for the summer, and her husband was in his late 30s. One night when my sister was out of town and the kids were asleep, he and I watched a movie together. When the movie ended, he said that if he was going to stay awake, we needed to watch something more interesting. He then turned on some porn. I think he maybe asked if I had ever watched porn before, which I hadn't, but I can't remember if he asked if I actually wanted to watch it with him, but I don't think he did. I was very religious at the time and very inexperienced sexually, so I was curious about what we were watching and I asked him questions about it, like I had never had oral sex before and asked if guys actually liked going down on girls. He proceeded to ask me a bunch of questions about my masturbation habits. He asked if I masturbated in the shower, how often I masturbated and the last time I did, what I thought about when I masturbated, and if I masturbated when I overheard my college roommate having sex with her boyfriend. His questions did make me uncomfortable because I was uncomfortable talking about masturbation in general and I actually felt guilty about masturbating, 
but at the time, I don't think I thought what he was doing was predatory. He had never been creepy or inappropriate in that way with me before, and I think I maybe thought of it as some kind of weird sex ed or something, but it did feel inappropriate. I also felt some shame around it because it's something I kept for my sister. At the time, my brother-in-law asked me to not tell my sister about it because they already had enough problems. They did have a very toxic relationship and fought all the time. I knew my sister would have a problem with what happened, but I didn't think it was something she'd leave her husband over, so I agreed that it'd be best to not mention it to her. My sister and her husband are now separated and have been for a few years. Yesterday, I thought about what happened 20 years ago and wondered if it was something that I should tell her about now. It seems weird that me and her estranged husband have this secret, but I'm also not sure if it's something worth telling at this point. She may even be angry with me for keeping this from her for so long but I wonder if it's information that she should know about him. I don't think they will ever get back together, but I do sometimes worry about that or that she's not fully moving on from the relationship. I have thought that if they ever started talking about getting back together, I would share what happened with her. But at least for now, I don't think that's an issue. However, I do still wonder, should I tell my sister about this or should I keep this information to myself? He'd never been creepy or inappropriate until that moment when he was so insanely creepy and so wildly inappropriate your brother-in-law in his 30s was trying to get into your pant 19 years old home alone with your your sister's husband their kids their kids are asleep he puts on porn and starts asking you questions about when and how and where and how often you masturbate yeah that was creepy and inappropriate and he was clearly making a kind of bank shot move he didn't make a physical move but he brought everything around in that moment to sex for a reason and it wasn't to provide you with a little sex ed it wasn't an effort on his part to sort of mercy mission some sex ed for his poor sister-in-law who was raised in a religious household and went to religious schools and didn't get any decent sex education No, he's trying to fucking fuck you. And he gets no credit for the fact that when he sort of read you after he introduced, raised the subject of sex in this very graphic way by like just putting on some porn, he doesn't get any credit that didn't escalate physically, that he didn't attempt to escalate physically. Because it's clear. That's why you felt uncomfortable in the moment. It was clear in the moment what he was trying to do, that you got something from it. You felt like you got a little bit of sex ed in that moment. It was news to you that men do like going down on women. Maybe it sounds like his questions about masturbation you found weirdly affirming maybe even that you had a right to masturbate. And a right to, no, 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 no. None of that valorizes him in that moment. None of that makes what he did okay, which isn't really – I'm not answering your question. That's not the question. The question is not was he okay? Was this okay? Obviously, he wasn't okay. This wasn't okay. The question, do you tell your sister? And I think you do. There's a chance, of course, that your sister's going to be mad that you didn't tell her about this in the moment. If she is mad, let her be mad. Let her feel that feeling. Don't argue with her about her anger. Just point out to her the impossible position that you as a 19-year-old were put in by her husband. They had problems. They were married. They were parents together. They were trying to make it work. If you had told her this at the time or over the years when they were still trying to make their relationship work, 
it would have been throwing a monkey wrench in and you were young and naive and you were manipulated by her husband into keeping this secret, not, you know, in the way that he introduced it to you just to protect him, but to protect your sister and their marriage and something that she was working on and valued and wanted to make work and you didn't want to be the reason it all fell apart. And so the longer you kept the secret, the harder it was to share it. But you're sharing it now because you think that she should know, particularly if they're only separated and she's thinking perhaps about getting back together with him. You want to unburden yourself now, finally, and apologize for not telling her right away. Hopefully she'll be able to understand why in the moment you hesitated and then there's something about not telling somebody the truth in a moment like that that makes it harder to circle back and tell the truth and then you kick that can down the road. They get longer and longer. Years go by. <sighs> if your sister has any moral imagination, any empathy, she'll be able to understand, if not right away, eventually, why you waited two decades to tell her about this. But why you decided not to wait any longer. Tell her about it now so that if she was thinking about getting back together with her creepy-ass husband, she had this information. Information, yes, you should apologize. She may have been entitled to have all along, decades ago, but information that she's certainly entitled to have now. Hi, Dan. I'm six months into my first post-marriage E&M relationship with an amazing partner for whom this is also her first attempt at E&M. I am a 44-year-old bisexual heteroromantic cis male, and she a 46-year-old bisexual biromantic cis female. We started dating back in March and have developed a strong union with great sex and communication, despite her being a working mother of three with near full custody. Early on, we both expressed a desire for casual same-sex encounters on the side, but both recognized she would have a harder time as it requires more effort to engage women sexually. We are also open to sex with opposite sex partners, provided it's known in advance. And she did express early on the desire to be a unicorn. While I wanted to define boundaries to avoid missteps, she prefers less structure to avoid constraints and the resentment that may result. And we agree to tell each other when outside sex happens. Considering the nature of men in her schedule, I've had over a dozen same-sex encounters since we began dating over six months ago. But telling her has not always been easy because she doesn't like my numerous outside encounters and doesn't react supportively when I disclose them. She has voiced a concern, probably influenced by family and friends, about my contracting an STI and putting her at risk. I'm on prep and use condoms for penetrative anal sex, and I know that risk of oral transmission of STIs exists, but understand it's relatively low compared to penetrative intercourse, whether male or female. Despite this, when she finally had her first same-sex experience, I made sure to offer support and congratulatory praise. It was after this I realized she was getting closer to a position that felt threatening to me. I expressed my concern of inequity, but she did not see an imbalance and felt the risk of her developing a romantic connection was somehow similar to my more numerous same-sex encounters. Well, now she is soon to be having threesomes with her partner's E&M boyfriend after she asked if it would be okay with me. I replied with a similar position she has taken with me, which is that while I'm not comfortable with her engaging her female partner routinely due to the fact that she's biromantic, I also recognize it as a cost of admission, as she seems to have done with my outside encounters, and that I expect the same courtesy of being informed every time they have sex. I'm hoping she soon realizes what it's like to have to constantly break bad news despite having expressed the desire early on in the relationship. 
Perhaps then she might be less condemning and more supportive of my exploring my same-sex desires. All this considered, I can't help but ask, is it fair for me to claim that our arrangement is inequitable considering she is biromantic and now in an ongoing relationship with a woman and a side of boyfriend dick while I'm having multiple sex partners with whom I cannot have a romantic connection? Lastly, is it me or does this sound like your everyday heteronormative bias against a bisexual man in the form of he must be risky and will bring him an STI? Or maybe just not wanting to admit to friends that she is okay with my same-sex encounters? What do you think it is? Well, this relationship sounds like a lot of fun, which makes me feel just a little bad about what I'm going to tell you next, which is just to fucking break up with each other. Just fucking break up with each other. Don't stick around. Don't parse this. I, I think you're both in the wrong that you have to go and tell her when you fuck around with other people and she's unhappy with it. And she's going to express that to you in the hopes, I guess, that you won't fuck around with other guys as often or as much or at all. If you're paying this emotional price each time you do by having to disclose to her and then having to process with her, her anger or judgment or disapproval. And similarly, she has to come confess to you whenever she goes to see this other woman and gets the side of boyfriend dick and you're unhappy. It just, you're going to retaliate against each other. You're both punishing each other for doing what you both told each other you're allowed to do. If you can't not punish each other for doing what you both told each other you're allowed to do, then you shouldn't be doing it. And in this case, I would define it as each other at all. Break the fuck up. All that said, as a man who has sex with men, as a man who has sex with men and is in an open relationship, we, you and me, are at higher risk of contracting an STI from our sex partners because men who have sex with men, gay or bi, have higher rates of STIs than men who have sex with women, than women who have sex with women, than women who have sex with men. That's just a fact. And if you are a bi guy in an open relationship with a, a, a straight woman and or a bi woman and you have her permission to sleep with other men, yeah, you're going to probably have to deal with a little bit of anxiety, not unreasonable anxiety from your partner about their increased risk of exposure to an STI through you. That's not biphobic. That's not homophobic. That's just fucking reality. And your partner wanting some reassurance, wanting to hear that you're on prep, that you're using condoms for all penetrative sex, except oral sex, which is still penetrative sex, which still carries the risk of STI transmission. That may be something your partner needs to hear again and again and again, particularly if you're having sex with a lot of men. For some people, 12 guys since March is a lot. For other people, 12 guys in a week is average. Your mileage may vary and your partner's comfort level may vary. You know, it's early in this relationship, but if you stay in this relationship, contra my advice, maybe she'd calm down over time. As you continue to see guys at the rate of one every couple of weeks, every three weeks, and not bring home an STI because you're careful about penetrative sex, about being on prep, and because you're lucky around not contracting anything around doing oral sex, which is still possible, maybe she'll come down and have less anxiety and require less reassurance from you going forward. But at least for now, she requires some reassurance, as do you, because you're threatened by the fact that she could catch feelings for one of her female sex partners. Always a risk you run, even in a monogamous relationship, even if you're not allowed to have sex with other people, you can catch feelings for someone that you're not fucking. So yeah, either you allow for 
that risk that your girlfriend might catch feelings for some other woman and live with it and allow her to reassure your anxieties around that risk in the same way she should allow you to reassure her anxieties around the increased STI risk, which is just a fucking fact, not biphobia or homophobia. If you guys can't reassure and mollify each other, if you're just going to go to war with each other and try to up the opportunity costs whenever either of you gets laid elsewhere and just punish each other for it in the hopes that it'll be too emotionally taxing for her when she sleeps with a woman more than once because you can't deal with your bullshit so she'll stop and it'll be too emotionally taxing for you to fuck another guy when you want because she's going to freak out. Ugh. Ugh. If you guys, if you two can't get past that, just get the fuck away from each other. Just end this relationship. That kind of game playing, scorekeeping, lack of compassion and consideration in the moment, it doesn't disqualify you from having sex partners or relationships. It disqualifies you from being in a relationship with each other. Break the fuck up. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm here with a friend, and we're watching a, a documentary on the Romans. They're having an orgy, but we weren't sure how many people constitutes an orgy. Is it? I, I, my answer is a minimum of five. You have four to foursome. When you get past four, then it's an orgy. We asked Google. They don't know. They're not giving us specifics. Help us, Sam. I wasn't aware Google was using they, them pronouns. Good to know. Going to file that away. I agree with you. I think you need five people at least to be an orgy. One, solo sex. Two, partnered sex. Three, threesome. Four, foursome. Five and up? Yeah, that's an orgy, officially, by my standards. I've heard from some people that don't regard a five-way as an orgy. They might call it a five-way. Some people argue you need six or more and an odd number so that people can't just pair off. You need nine or you need seven or you need 11. Not good at math. I'm going to toss out an even number by accident, so I'll stop. Yeah, some people feel differently and think five is too few. I think five is just enough. And of course, five is an odd number. Hey, Dan, 30-year-old cis woman who recently started dating a cis man. I have a terminology question. So when we're having sex, we really like, I'm trying to think of the right word, but just sliding his penis between my labia and like it feels really good for the head of his dick. It feels really good for my clit. And I'd like to have a word for it because then I could say I wanted to do that or say it's hot. And both of us kind of laughed and thought the only thing we'd ever heard was hot dogging. But then when I looked that up, that's apparently for butts. I know it's like a type of outer course, but that's really not specific. So I guess I'm wondering if you or any of your listeners have a word for that that's hot and not icky. They call them buns. You put meat in it. It's a hot dog, hot dogging. This sliding the dick back and forth across the labia, straight up and down, bumping the clit, form of outer course. Excellent, I hear from people who practice this. Not hot dogging, lips aren't buns, lip service. I think lip service would be a perfectly adequate, acceptable term. He would know what you meant by that. But if anyone else out there has got a better idea, a better name for this sex act, give us a call. Help this listener out. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight white guy, cis, and uh, I'm in a long-term committed relationship, long-term, like 20 years, part of that 
for quite a while we've been married to a woman who's awesome. But uh, we are kind of classic mismatched sexual desire. I would be happy with having sex maybe once a week, once every couple of weeks even. She can go a year or more without uh, being sexual. She just has other things on her mind. Uh, I don't think she doesn't like sex at all, but she just really doesn't have a lot of desire. And she feels pressured anytime I kind of ask for it or try to come on to her in a variety of ways. Bought her sex toys and she doesn't have an interest in that kind of thing. So you've heard this before, I'm sure. It's a great relationship. Otherwise, you know, we're really well intertwined. We parent a dog together and communicate really well. I guess the interesting twist is um, she says, you know, that my pot habit is what keeps her from being attracted to me and that, you know, it's kind of like a balance of I want sex and I don't get it and she wants me to not be a stoner and she doesn't get that. So we're in this like vicious cycle. I like pot, but I can go, you know, about a week. seems like once a week or twice a week is about my happy place for keep my mental health. I don't use other drugs. The rest of my family is on antidepressants and I sometimes get a little dark without it. So man, I don't know, you know, maybe 10 years ago we had sex once (laughs) and uh, I think she didn't want me to get a high later that day, but I did. And she like took her hand like she was turning a key on her uterus and was like, that's it. I'm turning it off. And uh, it kind of happened, you know, like about two years ago, I quit for like a month and we did have sex that month uh, once. It was great. And then, but it's just really hard for me to go that long without weed. So I know you like weed here and there. I don't have to be a total stoner. I keep my job. I try to manage my shit. So I am a productive member of society and um, responsible most of the time. But um, I'd like to have a sex life. And so I don't know, wondering what your advice is. Should I quit weed for a while and see if uh, she really would have a sexual desire without me being a stoner or what i don't know discuss opening the relationship once and it didn't land well so i don't think that's the solution for the time being anyway and i really love this woman uh we're pretty good together otherwise but man i'm 50 and i don't want to think about the rest of my life without getting laid i really like pussy uh but i don't get to touch it much at all I'm glad you love this woman because I kind of fucking hate her. I don't know her as well as you do. And I have a bias here. I'm a bit of a pothead myself, but I just don't believe her. I don't believe that the problem uh, here is that you smoke pot and therefore she has no desire for you. She has a very low libido, wants to have sex once or twice a year, maybe, and stupidly, didn't prioritize sexual compatibility in her primary relationship, just as you stupidly didn't prioritize sexual compatibility in your primary committed relationship. And rather than just take responsibility for that, rather than work out a reasonable accommodation that allows for you to have sex a little more often than she might like, and a reasonable accommodation might be go have sex with other people and just let's D-A-D-T it. I don't want to hear about it, but do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. That's a reasonable accommodation. Instead of being reasonable, she's being irrational and controlling and manipulative. And she's blaming you and your pot use for something that blame doesn't need to be assigned for. She has a low libido. 
but she's rationalizing that low libido or trying to make it your fault rather than just accepting it as her set point. And if it is her set point and it's going to create conflict in the relationship, well, then a reasonable accommodation has to be made that allows for you to have more sex with someone, if not her, than she might like to have. That can mean you're allowed to go to Jack Shacks. That can mean you're allowed to see a sex worker uh, who's not doing sex work under duress and tipping very well. That can mean that maybe sometimes she has a little maintenance sex with you that's a little routine or she just sits on your face and lets you eat her pussy while you have a fucking wank. There's lots of ways to accommodate a higher libido partner in a mix-matched libido relationship short of opening the relationship. Opening the relationship is also one way for that accommodation to be made. But assigning blame, trying to convince you this is all your fault, it's because of what sounds like, and we only have your characterization to go on here, but what sounds like perfectly reasonable, moderate use of, compared to alcohol, completely benign substance, pot. And yeah, you and I... And Nancy and the Tech Heavy At-Risk Youth are all nodding at me furiously right now. We all know that she's full of shit, that you could stop smoking pot for the rest of your life and the person that you've been with for 20 years isn't suddenly going to want to fuck you all the time. It's just not going to happen. So I wouldn't bother trying. I wouldn't waste my time. I wouldn't deny myself the pleasure that pot brings into my life if I were in your shoes considering the pleasures that aren't a part of your life in this relationship. I would consider exiting this relationship if I were you. And if that is logistically not possible, if that would be not a great outcome for her or for you or for both of you and your poor dog, I would give myself permission to do what I needed to do to stay married and stay sane. I would, in your shoes, continue to smoke the pot, smile and nod and tune my partner out while <laughs> She told me that it was my fault we weren't having sex because I was still smoking pot and then going out and getting sex elsewhere, safely, responsibly, discreetly, so as to maintain my sanity. Hey, Dan. Good morning. This is a 24-year-old gay male living in a pretty red state. Basically, I came out two years ago, so I'm still kind of experimenting and understanding what I like. And there are not that many people in this state who I'm attracted to because I'm also a minority. Not so much I'm attracted to, but with whom I have that good vibe because, you know, they need to be liberal, etc. Can't be Trump supporters. My question is more of the fact that there's this guy older. I really liked him. We kind of vibed a lot. And I knew he was in an open relationship, but it was okay with me and he was all honest and everything with me. And then things ended for the reason that he was a Trump supporter. I wasn't okay with it. But later, um, I, so I didn't hook up with him, but then later I asked his help to get his husband's help because his husband's a doctor. Like I needed a doctor's appointment. So his doc, his husband's my doctor and my my question is going to be like if I should hook up with him, knowing that his husband's my doctor. But I have like really strong morals with regards to not hooking up with the Trump supporters. The fact that his husband, that 
both of them are quote unquote fiscally conservative and socially liberal is pretty much a deal breaker. But yeah, I shouldn't be hooking up with them. My issue though is like there are not that many people in the state where I'm at who have the same political beliefs because it's super red. So it's making me reconsider those things. But if you have any perspective, I would love that. Oh, oh, it's time for a second opinion. Joining me for the second opinion is Alexander Cheeves, sex columnist for Out Magazine, the man behind the Love Beastly Sex Advice blog. He has an upcoming collection of queer erotic essays coming out in October titled My Love is a Beast Confessions. Hey, Alexander, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Hey, thank you for having me. I want to be honest. You know, this is a question that touches on gay stuff, identity, sex, politics. And I wanted to have you on the podcast to to talk about your book, but I figured I could slip you in as a second opinion guest because you also write an advice column and have for many years. So let's do some advice together and then let's talk about your book. So what's your advice for this guy? He lives in Trump country. He's gay. He's a member of a minority group. And his only options for dick seem to be dick attached to Trump supporters. What would you advise him to do or not do? I am probably going to test some people off by saying this, but people need sex. People need intimacy. And I mean, I've never been of the mind to say that I'm never going to have sex with a Trump supporter. And I, and, and actually I think that that's not the best way to approach political differences, right? There's many different kinds of Trump supporters. And I mean, I have, I have friends who are, who are conservatives and, and, and certainly have differing political opinions with me. I, I draw the line where they think I'm a, you know, unworthy human being and believe you know, anti-science rhetoric, but I think it's actually good sometimes to have um, people in your life who challenge and, and, and force you to define your, your beliefs politically, socially as being different from theirs, that, that those kind of connections can actually hone and refine and, and sort of fortify the way that you view the world. So, and, and I just, I would never tell anybody to, if, if you're isolated, and you need sex. I'm never going to tell anybody to say no to the only people available to you. I, I think that's I think that's a little cool. But if you look at even the the, the reddest, Trumpiest counties, it's not a hundred percent for Trump. There's not a hundred percent of the vote going for Trump. There's thousands and thousands of people, mm-hmm. and therefore hundreds of people in each of those counties who would be gay who voted for for the Democrat, who voted for Joe Biden, who voted against anti-science, who voted against bigotry, who voted against racism, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. So uh, I guess I differ with you on this, which is what second opinion is all about. I differ with you on this. I don't think that we should fuck Trump supporters. I didn't feel that way about people who voted for Romney or McCain. I just think Trump is, while a continuation of the direction the Republican Party had been headed in for 40 years, much more dangerous Mm -hmm. and different. And I despair of the possibility that you can fuck some sense into a Trump supporter. Oh, yeah. No. You, you, well, you can't, right? Like, but sex isn't necessarily an exchange of ideas, <laughs> of ideas right? Like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what kind of sex this guy is looking for or what his sexual style is, but um, I, mean, I mean, like, the reality is I have a lot of anonymous sex in my life, and for all I know, I probably had sex with tons of Trump supporters. I mean, I, I, the fact is I just don't know. I, I, I don't know the political opinions of most people I have sex with. I don't know their name. So, you know, it, and, and, 
and that's and that's okay with me. I, I accept the fact that I might have sex with someone who's a Trump supporter. I might have sex with someone who, you know, has gonorrhea. Like, <laughs> I see those guys kind of being a similar risk factor, you know. And uh, uh-huh. and uh, no, I do not believe that 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 by virtue of having sex with somebody that you can change their 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 political opinions. Nor do I think is that a very I don't know, exciting enterprise. I don't think that's viable. I mean, it, it would be different if we were talking about relationships, right? If this guy was in a place where he felt like his only relationship possibility right. were that, with... Wait, that's where I wanted to jump and impress you because this isn't anonymous sex. I get that. You know, yeah. you're having anonymous sex. You're not going to have people fill out a questionnaire getting their position on choice and vaccines mm-hmm. and voter suppression antics by the Republican Party. No, you're just going to have sex. So yeah, you're going to have sex with people you probably fundamentally disagree with about the issues or the direction of the country sometimes. But this is about a relationship. He knows this guy. He's dating this guy. He's in an open relationship. Now this guy's partner is his doctor and he's getting more and more enmeshed in their lives and they're Trumpers. And uh, that uh, maybe my libido functions. The wires are crossed between my politics and my libido because – Knowing somebody was a Trumper is going to make me not able to stay hard enough to get my dick in them in the first place, or not that my dick is an mm-hmm. Oscar or anything, but reward them with my dick. I just <laughs> it just is like kryptonite. Like I look at someone who's a Trump supporter, even if they're hot, there's some of them out there, some crazy gay Trump supporters who are hot. Yeah, and I just think, yeah, I couldn't, uh-huh. I couldn't. It doesn't make me a better person than someone who could or would, but I couldn't. I couldn't go there. Yeah. I mean, if I got this question on my blog, actually, the, fir- the first thing that I would say is uh, you probably should not be in a relationship with the partner of your of your primary care physician. I mean, because that, that's just mess. I mean, that's that's messy. And that's it. I mean, I, I, I obviously don't know like medical law, but that feels to a degree unethical. I, you know, I don't know how good a of standard of care I would trust for somebody who is partnered with the person I'm sleeping with. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that to me, that's, that's like the bigger red flag is, is, is your, is your, is now your medical care is getting enmeshed in your romantic and sexual life. And that's, that really needs to be severed no matter what. And I would, and I would tell him like, you probably really, I mean, if you really like your health care that you're getting, then you, then you really need to choose. Like, do you have a doctor or do you have this effectively a polycule? Um, you know, do you, you know, which one do you choose? Cause I, I, I would not suggest anybody maintaining both. And enough of a relationship with the guy he's been fucking around with that he could call in a favor. Like he called the guy and said, can you get me an appointment with your partner, your spouse, the doctor? Uh, Cause I need yeah. to see a doctor. So there's okay. a real relationship here. There is a connection here and maybe he'll, you know, give me a lever, a big enough lever and a place to stand. I can move the world. Maybe his dick is that big enough lever and the sex is the place that they're standing and he can move them off Trump a little bit. But I want to zoom out. You're from a rural area. You grew up on a, you grew up on a farm, right? Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of, in the middle of Trump country. And now you live in New York city, which mm-hmm. I'm jealous of, cause I've always wanted to live there and I never have. And so, so <laughs> Check me on this as someone from a rural area. Because when I get questions like this, you know, I live here, very isolated. A lot of people are pretty anti-gay. It's a really red place I live. A lot of Trumpers. My first impulse is move. Get out of there. Get someplace 
better. Is that urbanist, as like in the same sense, like racist? Is that kind of like urban bias on my part? Is that classist? Is it unfair, unhelpful for me to tell someone who is in an area like the place you grew up to get to a place like the place you live now? You know, that's a really beautiful and really important question and a, a really meaningful one. I, I, I get a lot of questions like that, too. And um, that's a really situational-based thing. Uh, I mean, it really depends on like, someone's age, someone's how good someone's relationship with their parents is, what kind of job prospects, what kind of, what kind of educational prospects. They, there are so many things that tie you to a place. For people who live in cities, and especially for people who travel a lot, I mean, I've never stayed in a city longer than three years. The idea of leaving someplace I am and going somewhere else now is pretty easy. It's very, very hard at the very at the, at the beginning. You, I mean, going from a small, very, I mean, I, I, did, I didn't even live in a small town. I lived on a 500 acre farm in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even have internet. So, going from that to even a small city was abjectly terrifying. I knew that it was the right thing to do. It's what I needed to do in order to be gay, really. But it was it was terrifying. And I would have and I only was able to do it because my family had enough money to you know and, and, and even despite a bad relationship, they still helped me through college and, and, and I managed to go to a good school and managed to get good jobs. And a lot of that comes from privilege. And there's people who there's people who just frankly don't share some of those privileges, don't have the same opportunities that I have. And it is difficult to get out. And let's face it, some people like their small towns. There might be parts of them that they wish were different. They might feel isolated and lonely. But many people enjoy living in small places and places where they, you know, they, they might feel like an outcast, but they there's parts of it that they love. And I don't think that's a one size fits all solution to just get out. You write very honestly in your new book, which is Really terrific. My Love is a Beast Confessions comes out October 12th from Unbound Edition Press. You write about niche sexual interests like fisting and bondage. And I sometimes hear from people who aren't just gay, but they have like really niche sexual interests. And, you know, the bigger the city Mm -hmm. you're in, the more people you're going to find in that city who share your sexual orientation that you may find attractive who also share your kinks or your niche sexual interests. And I get letters from people who are like in a place, you know, where a thousand people live who are crazy into full rubber coverage, gimp suit, bondage, fisting, mm-hmm. banana sex, which I completely support and have experienced myself, and it's awesome. But if that's what you're into, you're really putting yourself at a massive disadvantage if you say, but I love living in a rural area in a quiet place, but I'm going to complain endlessly about being lonely and not having any playmates. Like pick one, the rural area, quiet place, or New York City where you'll have more opportunity. Yeah, I mean, if it, it, it really, I, I know people who, I know, I know hardcore kinksters who do live in super small towns and they just make it a part of their life to travel often and frequently. You know, they may, they might live in rural North Dakota, but they, but they travel to Folsom and blah, 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 blah. And that's their way that they express their lives. I think a lot of people can't do that. And, and honestly, if, that's why I left. That's why I moved from bigger and bigger city to bigger city. I mean, I, that's why that city hop is to find more people into what I'm into. And I just know people who've just chosen that's not enough. That's not it's not it's not a big enough reason to get out of, get out of there. And that that was a big enough reason for me. This might be dramatic to say, but if I had not found a way out of my small town, I I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be alive right now. I, I know that. I was I was incredibly miserable. I was incredibly isolated. And that's not so painful until you get hints that there's a 
that there's a broader world out there. And when you're so, um, you're, you know, many people, when you're so isolated and you're so sheltered, you don't even really know what cultures you can find out there. I mean, I mean, maybe you do, maybe kids know now, everybody has internet now, but for me, I didn't even really know what I, what was waiting for me when I got out. And once I started to get hints of that through, through the internet, through social media, through magazines, and realized, oh, wait, there are cities out there where there are openly gay people, it made staying incredibly painful and impossible. It was no longer an option. So as soon as I could get out, I, I did. Well, let's talk about the book. It's really terrific. It's a, a kind of a sex memoir. You're very open. You're very transparent. You write about your kinks, and this, this line really vibed with me because I think this is so true of sex. You know, something I say all the time is we're told when we're children that we will grow up one day and have sex. And the reality is we grow up and sex has us. It's the other way around. We aren't in charge. And you write of your kinks, they acquired me. I didn't acquire them. Can you unpack that? I don't believe there's a, a why or how to kink. I don't think, I, I, I do not share the belief that kinks and fetishes come from, I mean, I mean, I mean, they certainly can come from trauma, but I, but I think a lot of times you're just born with these little twists and, and they're with you from birth. I, 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 I 100%, I, I, cause I know, cause I knew it was kinky before I even knew I was gay. So if anything, kink has been with me longer, even than my own, you know, self-understood sexuality. If anything, I had to grow into them. It wasn't necessarily something that I discovered. It's something that was always there. I just had to let it out. And it took a long time to do that. In a sense, you had to allow it, not fight it, nurture it, figure out how to channel it so it was healthy and it made you feel good about your sex and your sexuality and your experiences and the intimacies that mm -hmm. you created and allowed for. Your book is is really beautiful. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. We're, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you about one particular chapter in the book that's titled Pussy. Oh, yeah. I'm old enough to remember 10 years ago when there was kind of a moral panic freak out in gay land and in, you know, LGBT land looking at the gay guys and complaining about gay bros and mask for mask. And that's kind of evaporated. Now, you see guys on Grinder, you see guys on Recon wearing panties. There is kind of this embrace of more feminine kind of sexual self-expression. Mm -hmm. And I've been really fascinated. You know, when I first came out, if you called some gay guy's ass a pussy, he'd fight you. And now, like <laughs> younger gay men call their assholes pussies. They, call, they talk about their cunts. And is this sexist? Is this you know, an embrace of what it means to be the person who is penetrated by picking these words up off the shelf. What is going on with the word pussy and gay men for people out there who haven't encountered gay men who use this term, embrace it and, and don't use it in a disparaging way. How would you explain this phenomenon or even to older gay men who are like, huh? Well, one line that I write about in the book is I say, I don't believe being feminized is bad. I think that women I, I don't. I don't think it's radical to think that half the population is equal to uh, is, is equal to the other half. I'm, I'm I'm a feminist, but culturally, being feminized hurts. It is. It's it's a it's a violent action. It, feminization has often been associated with culturally with 
subjugation with servitude. And, 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 you know, a lot of fetishes are born from cultural taboos, cultural standards. And I think that this is, I think that this is just one of them that's kind of in a, in a moment right now where I think there's a lot of people who at the front of their mind can say, you know, everyone is, you know, all, all genders are equal. Everyone is equal. Everyone, everyone deserves the same degree of respect and rights and command of their own bodies. But I'm going to play with these old cultural tropes, and I'm going to explore the sexual side of these old cultural tropes. And 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 I and I fully believe that you can do both. I feel like I present fairly masculine, and and I like the idea of being feminized. I think it's hot, and it plays into a a sense of degradation and submission and power play within sex. And I think there's a lot of, and I, honestly, I think there's a lot of cisgender women who can who can also comment on that that they that they enjoy that same kind of power play and that same kind of subjugation and degradation and submission. I just borrow the language. I like I, I just borrow the word pussy. Um and, and not just borrow, I think it's the hottest fucking word in the world. And it's and it's my favorite word to use to describe my own body. I wanted to read a little short passage from the book to give everyone out there listening a sense uh, for your prose, and I thought this was really beautiful. Sometimes it is important to be just a whole. There are straight men everywhere who want to be just a whole. Many powerful and wonderful women just want to be holes. There are people of all genders and no gender who just want to be holes. Everyone has holes, and most of us have difficult histories with them, fears and shames attached to them. They are the most intimate parts of our bodies. We're told to cover them up, clean them, keep them closed, hide them, tend to them in private. Our holes are where we rub and thrust, come and bleed and shit. We could not survive without our holes, not for a day. That's just gorgeous. I, I've never read an ode to holes that moved me and made me feel connected to everyone. You know, our our, our shared humanity through our holes. You're going to make me cry, Dan. Thank you Anyway, that, that's my endorsement of the book. The book is full of passages like that. Anyone who's interested in sex should really pick it up and read it. Alexander Cheeves, Sex Columnist for Out Magazine, The Man Behind the Love Beastly, Advice Blog, new collection of queer erotic essays titled My Love is a Beast Confessions, published October 12th from Unbound Edition Press. Hey, Alexander, that was really fun. I hope you'll come back on the show sometime and, and do this again. It would be my honor, Dan. I always appreciate like talking to you. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm a 30-year-old um, cis woman who recently came out as bisexual. Um, last week during Bi Visibility Day, I decided to just go ahead and do it. Um, I'd wanted to come out to my parents privately before I turned 30, but I never felt emotionally safe to do so. Seeing to me as being bisexual really isn't a big deal. I decided just to post on social media um, and say, hey, I'm bi and being bi is great. Um, so a few days later, I get a phone call from my mom, and she's wanting to talk about the social media post. She's basically said um, she felt disrespected that I hadn't come to them privately, um, that I should be old enough to not want to post these things on social media. Um, I told her, you know, I had never felt that it was safe to have that conversation with my parents. Um, and I didn't want to make it a big deal because it isn't. But I also wanted to post something because it's important to have visibility. She went on to just say she wants the best for me, uh, but her and dad believe every word of the Bible and, you know, on and on and on. They're both 
Baptist. I grew up Southern Baptist, so that's like ingrained in their brains. She said she still loves me and accepts me in their family, uh, but obviously not. Um, I'm not sure how to really proceed from here. I wouldn't say we are super close, but we text often. She brought me food when I was sick a couple weeks ago. I mean, we live 20 minutes away, so I don't know any help on what I should do now. There was no right way to come out to your mother or to come out at all, at least according to your mother. You did it on social media. That wasn't okay. She doesn't feel like that's a thing people should talk about on social media, which is bullshit because I'm sure if you look at her friend's Facebook feeds, they're full of pictures of her straight friends, kids, straight weddings and gender reveal parties and baby showers and all the other shit that is straight people talking about their sexualities on social media. And that doesn't bother her because she's homophobic and biphobic. And she wanted you to come to her in advance of posting on social media, clearly so she would have the opportunity to shame you out of telling anyone else that you're bisexual And so just fuck your mother. Like you came out the way that you came out. It's out there now. She knows now. She's let you know that she believes every word of the Bible. But of course she doesn't because she's not pro-slavery, I assume. She's not pro-killing your kids if they disobey or disrespect their parents. She's not coming to you to kill you now. So obviously she doesn't believe every word in the fucking Bible. And there's nothing to discuss. You're just going to have to agree to disagree. You're not going to resolve this with your mom. All you have to say is, bye now, now you know, happy to talk about it, not happy to walk it back, not happy to enter into negotiations where then I no longer identify as bisexual or stop sharing this fact about myself on these platforms where you and every straight person you know shares similar facts about themselves. You're not detailing your sex life. You're sharing a fact about your sexual orientation, same as any woman who ever put up a picture of her engagement ring or the proposal that her boyfriend made that wound up with an engagement ring on her finger. You're not being any more explicit than everybody else is being. And you're not going to put up with a double standard that tells you that you can't share details about your life that telegraphs something or share something very specific about your sexual orientation. Yeah, there's no point in really like digging into this. You're not going to pry the Bible out of your mom's cerebral cortex at this stage of life. And she's not going to unbuy you or shove you back in the closet because you're not going and it's not possible now that you've posted it to social media and good for you. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a mid-20s gay male calling from the Rocky Mountain region. So I've been seeing this guy for the past six months or so. Uh, We started dating and having really nice sex. And it all started out really nice and things were going great. And we kind of established ourselves as boyfriends a little while ago, just like a few weeks ago. And I, I guess what I'm struggling with right now is I just don't, feel anything towards him. I mean, I really like him, but in my mind, he is just a friend to me. And I guess why this is significant, it's not just like a one-time thing. Like, this has happened to me with almost every single romantic partner I have ever had. 
I, I guess I expected feelings to develop at some point. And I told him that when we kind of got together as boyfriends and had that talk about boundaries and all that, I, I kind of just said, look, I don't know what I'm feeling for you right now. All I know is I like hanging out with you, which was true because I didn't know what I was feeling for him. But at this point, I feel like I do. And it's just that, like, I think of him as a friend. And this is a pattern that I've noticed over the past, like, four to five years of my life where I have a strong attraction to someone and I get along with them, but at no point during the relationship do, do romantic feelings or what I expect to be romantic feelings, like, at no point do those pop up. So I guess for sake of maybe communicating to him what I'm feeling, I, at this point it's such a pattern that I'm wanting to call it something um, and I know people have been talking about free sexuality and all that, and I'm, I don't know if that really applies to me because really at no point do I feel romantic connection with people. So would I, do you think a romantic is an apt description for this? Like, I know I can label it however I want, but I, I just want your input because it's just, it would be so much easier in communicating with guys from the get go, just being like, look, I'm a romantic. Like, I don't form romantic connections at all or very easily. So just let me know what you think. All right. So you've noticed a pattern. You never experience romantic attraction. You are only in your mid twenties. I don't know how many relationships you've had uh, at this point in your mid twenties can't be an infinite number of relationships. So I don't want you to rule out the possibility that romantic attraction, although rare for you, not something you feel easily uh, isn't something you'll never feel. I think you should remain open to the possibility that you may one day meet someone or a couple of someones that attract you romantically in ways that none of the guys you've dated at this point in your life ever have in the past. In the interim, though, if you want to use this label, aromantic, to describe yourself, to describe basically how you functioned up to this point, I think you can and should I worry about you investing your entire identity in that label and then not recognizing a feeling of romantic attraction when it comes along, perhaps in five years, because you've convinced yourself that that's not something that you could ever feel and then you won't recognize it if you ever should feel it. But right now, particularly in conversations with guys who are interested in you romantically, for you to come out to them or describe yourself as aromantic, to use that term – They'll understand and that you understand at least what it means for you up to this moment. I think you, I think you should do that. I think that's smart. Also consider it because really when you tell someone something like that, you're resetting their expectations. Someone you're fucking around with, hanging out with, having sex with, enjoying spending time with may develop romantic feelings for you. If you're incapable of reciprocating, that's something you should let them know so they can adjust modulate their expectations so that their expectations of you are reasonable. And I do think if you're aromantic or asexual, you need to get out in front of that. Most people are not aromantic. Most people are not asexual. If you're with somebody, you're hanging out with them, you're having sex with them, it is perfectly reasonable to assume that they're interested in sex, they're having sex with you, or if they're dating you, that they're open to the possibility of romance. They're capable of feeling a romantic attachment. If that's not true of you, 
you need to disabuse somebody of that assumption, which is a perfectly reasonable assumption for a person that you're dating to make. So if using this term helps you communicate right now, use it. And I think it would. I think it really would help. And it would be helpful for the guys that you are involved with. But somewhere in the back of your head, leave the door open, just ajar, just a little bit. Leave open the possibility that romantic attraction for you, while rare, isn't something necessarily at this stage, mid-20s, however many relationships you have in your past, isn't something that couldn't ever happen for you. Hi, Dan Savage. I am a uh, 49-year-old woman. I live in California, Northern California, and I have a question about a sexual encounter I had recently. I was having sex with this guy our first time, and and then I realized because I could feel it, he like had pulled out his penis and peed. I felt like he peed on me, and not like he was doing it in a sexual way, but it was like leaking out like a lot, not like um like, but I couldn't see because we were having sex, and then I was like, after we were done, I was like, I felt like he peed in my vagina. <laughs> Is that possible? I'd never heard of it. I was like, because it was our first time, I was too uncomfortable to ask him about it. So I just kind of uh, left it. Anyways, is that something that happens to men? Obviously, I think women have their leaky issues, and I'm still not convinced that a squirter is not just pee, but I don't know. I have a hunch, but first... You're a 49-year-old grown-ass adult woman having sex with a man for the first time, presumably without a condom on, which is fine. Hopefully you guys like did a little risk assessment and that was a safe and wise choice. It can be. And yet you can have unprotected sex with this guy for the first time, but you can't ask him a question about his dick. You can't say, hey, what was that? You should be able to say, hey, what was that? If he peed inside of you without your consent, isn't that something – you deserve some clarity on? Isn't that something you would feel entitled to ask a follow-up question about? Because a dude who'll pee in your pussy without asking isn't someone you want in your pussy again. All that said, my hunch is not that this guy peed in your pussy. It is difficult, although not impossible, to pee with an erection. Guys can do it. But it's not easy. And if you want to pee inside somebody, usually the person who wants to pee inside somebody else needs to get very still and concentrate. You would have noticed before he pulled out if he was trying to urinate in you. So my hunch is that this guy, like some guys, produces a great deal of pre-ejaculate, which is a thing. Some guys leak. And some guys leak fucking puddles. And if you're having intercourse – with somebody who's a big pre-comer and he pulls out, in addition to your vaginal secretions, there can be a great deal of his pre-ejaculate that could come leaking out of his dick or it could be drawn out of your pussy as he pulls his dick out that may drip on you and you may – the sensation may be similar or what you think would be similar to a stream of urine, although it would be a little bit different. It wouldn't feel just like a stream of urine which has some force behind it, more of a little sploosh or a splash – but that's my hunch. Only way to know for sure what the hell happened, ask him a question. You can start with, did you pee on me or in me? If he's the kind of guy who pees on women without his, their consent, he may deny it. Or you could just ask him, like, I felt this thing. What do you think that was? And I bet the answer, and I think it will be the truth, is that he's one of those 
leaky faucets. He's one of those open tap pre-ejaculate guys. They're out there. And when they pull out of you, yeah, what you describe can happen. It's happened to me. All right, before I get to listener feedback, before we get to your response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Julie on the mic tweets, thank you at Fake Dan Savage for the original ITMFA mantra. I would like permission to alter it to ATMFA. The A stands for arrest and can be used for any of the insurrectionist motherfuckers still roaming free. Hey, Julie, feel free to riff on ITMFA, impeach the motherfucker already, which itself was a riff on DTMFA, dump the motherfucker already. Way back when, we sold a million dollars worth of ITMFA merch and all the profits, 400 grand, went to the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. So, yeah, do your own riff on ITMFA if you want to. Seems to me, though, that you could stick with the I in ITMFA. You don't have to change it because that I could stand for investigate or indict or imprison or all three. Tom Hunt tweets on the Savage Lovecast. Dan Savage compared at abstinence sex ed to his campaign to redefine Santorum. But I think it's more like the It Gets Better project. Well, I'd say it borrows a little bit from both. The Abstinence Project is out there gathering stories from people who've been harmed by purity culture and abstinence ed. That's like the It Gets Better project. But they're also hoping that people who Google abstinence or abstinence education find their way to the Abstinence Project instead. And that's a little bit like the Santorum Neologism campaign. And finally, Ryan Honnick tweets, thank you, Dan Savage, for Savage Love from A to Z. Really enjoyed the audio. Even as a longtime listener, there's comfort in the familiarity of the advice presented so succinctly and in a single resource. But maybe in the next edition, the D could focus on disability. If we do another edition, maybe to mark the 60th anniversary of Savage Love, maybe sooner than that, we'll definitely do disability. All right. Thanks to everybody who tweeted or posted your other social media accounts about the Savage Lovecast this week. We appreciate it. And now listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a response to episode 780, the woman who had lost sexual attraction to her partner. And the thing that stood out to me was her comment about how he was constantly touching her boobs or touching her butt. That kind of constant physical encroachment onto one's body. As a woman, for me, that can be exhausting. And if it's not always wanted, it can feel, I don't know, like not a violation, but maybe almost. And that could cause somebody to lose sexual attraction to someone as well. So if I were her, I would suggest asking the partner to maybe not touch her so much in you know, in intimate places and see if that helps. Hello. I am calling about the person in the last episode. It was a trans gay guy who was going to see an older person in Europe and they were worried about how to tell their parents. Your advice was basically just don't tell your parents. And I think often your advice with families is great. But in this case, I think you're missing kind of a level of closeness and a desire to share. And I think there is a way for for this person to do it. I think this person can just say, um, I met someone online, I'm going to see them. And then they don't need to talk about the age or the nature of the relationship. And then over time, you know, those pieces can be shared. But I think kind of the the high level of met online and going to see, like those things actually might scratch the itch for them of like, I'm still telling my parents about it. I'm not hiding from it. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. I'm responding to the episode 780 with a gentleman 
has a potential sugar daddy situation in Europe and he wants to go there. Dan, I feel like a major red flag was there that I feel is important to mention. It's the reality of human trafficking and some kind of awful situation happening with this gentleman up in Europe. It is very critical for this individual to tell people where he will be, the contact information of this person, the address. If it's not his parents because he doesn't want to come out to that degree, that's fine, but he should definitely have friends who know where he is and a safety plan because the worst thing that could happen that we don't want to think about because I'm a hopeful romantic as well is that someone that we think loves us is actually uh, scamming us or putting us in danger, and that's a real thing that could happen. So I just hope for his safety. I hope to be wrong. Just not bad to have your ducks lined up. You know what I mean? Keep it safe, y'all. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question you'd like me to answer or comment about this week's show? The best way to get us your question or your comment is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone, record your question or your comment, and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer those voice memos. The sound quality is much better. We still swing both ways on voice memos and phone calls. Sack Lunch, my monthly online hangout Q&A with Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers, is this Thursday, October 14th at noon Pacific. If you've never joined us, it's like the Lovecast, but live and streaming, and Magnum subs get to give advice with me. So, if you haven't already, upgrade to the Magnum Savage Lovecast at savage.love and join us this Thursday at Sack Lunch. Also this week, Vancouver, Chicago, and Tacoma. The Hump Film Fest is in town, in your town. Our 2021 lineup is screening at the Rio Theater in Vancouver, the Music Box Theater in Chicago, and Alma Mater in Tacoma. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets and for information about making a film for the Hump 2022 Tour. Finally, my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now. Go grab a copy anywhere books are sold. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Alexander Cheeves on Twitter at BadAlexCheeves. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on the installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.